Well, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 27. We are in the latter part of Acts, whereby the Apostle Paul was arrested and became a prisoner from Acts 20, chapter 21. And he's going to be a prisoner all the way to the end of the book of Acts. And it's not because Paul has committed any sort of crime, but he was, as you may remember, that he was falsely accused by the Jewish leaders for breaking laws that he did not do. Uh, so today, I have titled this message, Playing Politics. Playing Politics, and just to kind of give you a story, a little story about what happened yesterday. Yesterday, I told my friends, kind of sharing with them about the, what I'll be preaching and the title of the sermon, and I told them what I'm going to be talking about, and they, whenever, when, after I told them about the title, they actually laughed so hard. I'm like, why are you laughing so hard when I say playing politics? And that's because they thought it was playing politics. That is, the Apostle Paul is involved. In, is in, he is involved in, the, in politics in a sense, so I wasn't trying to be punny here. So. so, But we know that this chapter, as we're going to learn, it is related to the Apostle Paul. And this chapter that we're going to unfold is filled with dramas and tensions and ironies. I don't know how many of you have played games that require you to think or to strategize and make good choices because every decision you make in the present can impact future outcomes. Uh, just kind of by way of illustrating the picture of this chapter, let me just talk to you about ch chess. Uh, most of you, I, I assume, would know chess. It's a strategy board game. I used to play it when I was young. Uh, perhaps most of you have maybe played chess at least once in your life. Maybe there are a few of you right now who have played chess professionally, and you know all the different possible movements, and you can actually predict the next move of your opponent. And most of you know the, what is the objective of chess. Your objective is to checkmate your opponent's king. But to do that, you have to control the, your 16 chess pieces. And the game is just filled with ambitious and complex maneuvers. And each move you make has consequences. And there's no turning back until the game ends. And so I want to use chess as an example, as an illustration to symbolize the political and religious landscape of our time. See, while playing chess may be fun, however, playing politics is not. And what we will learn in the exposition of this chapter is that every character in this story is strategically plotting their moves to achieve their desired outcome. You see, the Jews want Paul dead. Paul is fighting for his life. And, the, and Festus, the new guy in town, is like the middleman in between all the characters. And so, but before we get ahead of ourselves, let's just remember the context that led up to Acts chapter 25. See, Paul is in prison of some of the charges and accusations that are falsely laid against him by the Jews. And we recall that the Apostle Paul was sent from Jerusalem to Caesarea by Claudius Lysias, the tribune. And so, in the previous chapter, 
Paul successfully made his defense before Felix the governor and the Sanhedrin. However, Felix, being the procrastinator, delayed his decision on Paul's case. And afterwards, Felix heard the gospel from the apostle Paul, but he also delayed in placing his faith in Jesus. And so, two years, two years later, Felix, or Paul, was in prison in Herod's praetorium, and Portius Festus became the new governor of Judea. And perhaps it's more accurately to say that Paul is in custody, not really like a typical prisoner because he's actually not locked under a dungeon, a dark dungeon. And now, as we unfold this chapter, Felix left a problem for Festus to deal with, which is Paul. And not only that, historically, Festus, in, Festus inherited the political problems by his predecessor. And so in case you don't know Festus, he was different from Felix's callousness, callousness and cruelty. Uh, Festus seems to be quite active in acquainting himself in the province of Judea. And after taking office, uh, Josephus, who was a Roman Jewish historian in the first century, he had some favorable things to say about Festus. Uh, he was fair, he was reasonable, he was, a, he was like a man who wanted real, he really wanted to govern the province really well, unlike Felix. And yet, Festus was new to his position. As an, and as an inexperienced governor, he immediately faced a lot of challenges. And we'll, go, and we'll get to that in a bit. And so in this chapter, we'll uncover four scenes in this political atmosphere. And that is first, there's the unforgiveness of the Jews. The unforgiveness of the Jews. See, we see here in verses 1 to 3. Now after three days, no, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So first one, Festus went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea to have a meeting with the Jews. And immediately after becoming a new governor, Festus wants to get to know the people and also the leaders in Jerusalem. And just as Festus lost no time in visiting Jerusalem, the Jews lost no time in bringing up Paul's case. See, two years have passed since the scenario in Acts chapter 23. And you may remember in Acts chapter 23, there were 40 Jews that told Claudius, the tribune, that they wanted another trial to make sure that Paul's case was revealed accurately. However, they used that as an excuse to ambush and kill Paul while going from the barracks to the Jerusalem temple. And after two years, these Jews get an opportunity to talk to Festus. And they know that the Apostle Paul is held as a prisoner in Caesarea. And so they laid out their case against the Apostle Paul. They made it known to him. It would have been the same false charges, false accusations given in the previous chapters. And so they urged Festus. They were asking Festus to do them a favor, 
and that is summon Paul to Jerusalem on trial. However, Luke notes there that it's because they were planning an ambush. They were planning to kill him on the way. They didn't even let the Apostle Paul go, even though he was far away. However, we see here that Festus saw no reason to comply to their demands since Paul was in Caesarea. He only hears one side of the story, but he knows nothing about the Apostle Paul and his side of the story. You see, always hearing two sides of the story is a wise and good mindset to have in our daily lives. Plus, Luke writes later on in verse 16 about Festus' report to King Agrippa, where Festus said this, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused, before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. And so we see here that Festus was proud to uphold the tradition of the Roman justice. And that is, everyone has to see each other first before the charges are laid. And so we continue on with the narrative in verses 4 to 6. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So we see in verse 4, Festus replied to the Jews that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and he plans to return shortly. And so in verse 5, to expedite the process, Festus told the Jews to bring in their most influential and powerful people, the leaders, go down to Caesarea with him and lay their charges against the Apostle Paul if, they were, if there was anything wrong about him. You see, Festus did have the desire to conciliate conciliate the Sanhedrin, that is, to stop them from being angry. And yet he also did not want to give them what they wanted. See, Festus may have been new to his job, but he wouldn't be exploited. Again, Festus did not know much about the Apostle Paul. He only knew that he was just a prisoner left by Felix. And so he wanted to find out more about the Apostle Paul that the Jews were talking about through a trial. And so in verse 5, we see here Festus was a man of action. You see, he stayed in Jerusalem for no more than eight or, eight or, nine or, eight or ten days, and then he returned to Caesarea afterwards, bringing the Jews with him so that he can set up an official Roman trial the next day. So here, he did not delay the trial after arriving in Caesarea. Festus would then sit on the tribunal, that is the judgment seat, as the judge of the trial. And then he ordered Paul to be brought. And just to kind of say this in passing, regarding the unforgiveness of the Jews here, I wonder how many of you are like the Jews, still harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone, or maybe some people, especially after many years. Let me just remind you of the words of Jesus, where Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is Jesus, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So what Jesus, is saying, what Jesus is saying here is forgive regardless. See, as Christians, we absolutely do not deserve forgiveness, especially from God. We do not deserve forgiveness from God because we have fallen short of his glory. But God in his grace, God in his mercy, and in his love made a way for sinners like you and I to have, for, to have our sins forgiven through Jesus' death and resurrection. And because of God's grace, because of what he has done for us through Jesus, we're instructed, we're commanded. It's not a suggestion, but we're commanded by our Lord to forgive others precisely because we've been forgiven much by God when we have trusted Jesus in his person and work. And so if, you have, so if you are still struggling with unforgiveness even to this day, maybe this is a reminder for you to forgive. And so that's that first scene that we've learned, the unforgiveness, the unforgiveness of the Jews. We have the second scene here, and that is the unfolding of Paul's strategy. The unfolding of Paul's strategy. You see, as Paul is brought before the tribunal, I want you to imagine what Paul may have been going through right now at this moment, what he may have been thinking right now. See, two years. He's been in custody for two years. And throughout his time, he may be wondering how the promise of Jesus will be fulfilled. You remember back, back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that Jesus spoke to Paul at night, and he said, you will not only testify about me in Jerusalem, but you will testify about me in Rome. Two years have passed. He thought he was going to Rome, but it seems like it got delayed. He's like, he's been waiting, waiting. Lord Jesus, when am I going to Rome? When, am I, when is your promise going to be fulfilled? And after the time has passed, he, even after two years, he now faces another trial. But as we think about this passage about the Apostle Paul, even after two years, there are things that time did not change for him. First, he's still innocent. Second, the truth was still on his side. And third, there is no evidence to charge him of committing any crime or breaking any law. So our story continues. Our story continues in verses 7 to 8. And when he had arrived, the Jews had, who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. We see that the Jews, they stood around Paul here during this trial. They're surrounding him. Now, just imagine this, not that it happened, possibly it could have happened. Imagine they're just circling around him. And they're shouting all these charges, these accusations against him. You can imagine the tone in that sitting. It was confrontational. It was heated. It was loud and maybe angry. 
And sometimes you may see that in the Canadian Parliament if you ever watch any of them. Uh, however, just like before, even two years before, they do not have evidence. They do not have proof of their charge. And since they have no proof, Paul makes his defense against the many and serious charges. He did not commit any offense against the law of the Jews, that is the Old Testament laws, the law of Moses. He did not commit any offense against the temple. Again, Paul was accused of defiling the temple by bringing in the, a, Greek, a Greek person into the temple, but he did not do that. He was innocent. And now they added a new charge not mentioned before. They charged Paul of committing treason against Caesar, which would have been one of the many of the many and serious charges. And if this were so, Paul would have been executed and he would have been beheaded by Rome. But here Paul is saying, I did nothing of those things. Again, zero evidence of their charges. Therefore, Paul is innocent and guiltless. And as we've been learning about Paul's trial before the Jews and before the Roman governor, I can't help but be reminded of the words of Jesus again and again. How should Christians, how should you and I, respond when others persecute us and even falsely accuse us? How would you respond? Well, Jesus gave us this, gave us this, this instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're to rejoice because we share in Christ's suffering. And just as Jesus experienced opposition and persecution, we, as believers, should also experience opposition. See, that's why the Apostle Paul said in Timothy that whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. See, knowing that Paul is innocent, Festus could have just made his final decision on the trial to pronounce Paul as an innocent man and then perhaps safely send Paul away from danger. He knows the truth. He knows the facts. But I think this is where Festus slips in his administration of justice. It says here, this is where Festus plays politics over someone's human life so that he can gain something. Luke tells us, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? See, the Jews earlier asked Festus for a favor, which was to summon Paul to Jerusalem. He didn't do that at first. Now he's wishing to do them a favor. He perhaps, know, he perhaps knows that if he releases Paul right now, he would not be in good favor with the Jews. And then perhaps they would cause problems for him. And so Festus asks if Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem and be tried on those charges before him? And if Paul were to go to Jerusalem, then Festus can win the approval of the Jews. You see, releasing Paul would make the Jewish leaders hate him. However, 
Festus actually did not know that by sending Paul to Jerusalem, he could jeopardize Paul's life since Festus did not know the intention of the Jews. Because if Paul were to go to Jerusalem, then the Jews would have a chance to ambush and kill him. But regardless, Festus will score some political points here. And this happens all too often in politics, isn't it? Yet I think we're, we're all, we may all be guilty of this to a certain extent, to a certain degree. We know what's the right thing to do, but we just don't do it. Perhaps instead, we're motivated by fear of men, we're motivated by convenience, and because of that motivation, we may compromise on our Christian ethics and principles so that we can win approval of men, so that we can gain benefits from the crowd. And maybe for the politicians, they can earn more votes. However, this is where Paul wisely responds to Festus in verses 10 to 11. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. See, by saying that he's standing before Caesar's tribunal, Paul is probably reminding Festus that he is the representative of the Roman emperor as an official agent. He can right now make a decision for Paul. And Paul here reminds Festus that he himself knows very well that Paul is innocent again and again. And if Paul were guilty, then Paul would say, you know what, if I am truly guilty, then I deserve death. He's at least this honest. He's very honest about this. He does deserve death if he, was, if he were guilty. But since Paul is innocent, no one can hand him over to the Jews. And so by saying that, I think Paul seems to know that something's not right. It should not be a surprise that Paul doesn't want to go to Jerusalem because he seems intuitively aware of the danger that lies ahead of him. Perhaps he also thinks that being tried in Jerusalem would put him in an unfair disadvantage because more Jews can make false accusations against him. And perhaps forcing and pressuring Festus, the new governor, to hand Paul over to a death sentence. Just like Pontius Pilate. Remember in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate, the Jews pressured him and then he handed, Jude, he handed Jesus over to, to the set death sentence, to be executed, to be crucified. Perhaps Paul knows, even right now, that I'm not supposed to go back to Jerusalem. I'm not supposed to backtrack. I'm supposed to go to Rome. And so if I'm supposed to go to Rome, here's the strategy. Here is Paul's strategy. He throws down his trump card, and we've seen him do that a couple of times already in the book of Acts, which is taking advantage of his Roman citizenship by appealing to Caesar, the Roman governor, uh, the Roman emperor. And this strategic response from Paul will accomplish three things. First, he will escape from danger, from the danger of heading towards Jerusalem. And second, he would legally be protected by the Romans. 
And third, appealing to Caesar would be his fast lane towards Rome. And Paul will then stand before Caesar on trial to render a, a final verdict or judgment upon Paul's case. See, Paul here, in his quick response, in his wisdom, he considers his choices and he chooses to do whatever he can to preserve his life and find safety from being falsely charged. And see, even as Christians, I think we can learn from Paul that it is okay to escape from persecution if need be. See, there's a difference between being thrown into the lion's den versus sticking your own, sticking your own head inside the lion's mouth. Furthermore, since Paul used his Roman citizenship as to his advantage, we can think about using that too. But of course, for us, we're, we're in a Canadian context, and we as Canadians have the Canadian Constitution, which is the Charters of Rights and Freedom, that should protect our basic and fundamental rights as Canadians, even as Christians, such as freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. And while this may be a rare, rare case, if you, but if you ever experience what the world calls the cancel culture for expressing our Christian faith, for teaching what the Bible teaches on, on particular topics, and we're getting canceled for it, then you can have the freedom to express what the Bible teaches. You can, you can point to the charters of rights and freedom. I have that right to express that. I have the freedom of speech to do so. And so after consulting with his with Festus's counsel, Paul's request here to appeal to Caesar has been granted by him. To see, to, then Festus here in verse 12, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. So now this case is taken, from, is taken out from the governor's hand and it's going to be transferred to the Roman emperor. And not only that, Festus was no longer responsible for Paul, although except for the fact that he needs to send him to Paul, uh, send him to uh, the Roman emperor, to Caesar. But it really is, but the, the thing is, the thorny problem is dealt with. The thorny problem is dealt with. Festus no longer needs to deal with this case anymore. But before Paul goes to Rome, and he does go, go there from chapter 27, and, and he gets there in chapter 28 of Acts, but before Paul gets to Rome, we run across the third scene, and that is the unexpected consultation. The unexpected consultation. We see here in verse 13. Now when some days have passed, had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. See, some days have passed after Paul appealed to Caesar we're introduced to two new characters, King Agrippa and Bernice. Well, who are they? Well, actually, both of them were siblings. They're also the sibling of Drusilla, Felix's wife that we've learned in chapter 24. King Agrippa, here in this, in this chapter, he's also known as Herod Agrippa II. His father, Herod Agrippa I, murdered James, and he actually died in Acts chapter 12. And during the, time, the year of his reign, King Agrippa II, he ruled over various 
regions in the north and east of Judea. And his full name was Marcus Julius Agrippa. You can, also, you can Google that name if you want. And he was considered by Rome to be an expert on the Jewish religion. And according to history, Agrippa II will be the last line of the Herod dynasty. Bernice, she was married to her uncle before, Herod the Chalcis. But after he died, after Herod Chalcis died, Agrippa II was appointed king in his uncle's place. And since then, Bernice and Agrippa II lived together. And it was believed by many that, that they had an incestuous relationship. And so King Agrippa and Bernice visited Caesarea to greet the new governor, Festus. And Festus here told the king about Paul's case. And Festus essentially here, in verses 14 to 22, just summarizes and recounts Paul's situation. He says, and, after, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chiefs, the chief priests, and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. So here, Paul is saying, these Sanhedrin, these Jewish council, they lay their serious charges against Paul, and they want Paul condemned to death. Continue our reading. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Jews to give up anyone before the, the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. And so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And then verses 18 to 19, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so what you see here, Festus thought in, this, in his report to King Agrippa, Festus thought that the charges against Paul were very serious, like a treason. He was interested in hearing about it. However, Festus came to the conclusion, again, that those charges against Paul weren't evil from his perspective. Rather, those charges were purely religious reasons. They were accusing Paul about this certain Jesus, this guy Jesus, who they say was dead, but now this guy called Paul say he's alive. And this is important to note here. Festus did not know Jesus. Festus just heard about him, but he didn't know him pretty well. He was probably not around during Jesus' ministry. But we'll get to this point again later on. But we continue our reading in verses 20 to 21. Being at a loss, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And so because of the religious charge, 
Festus did not know how to investigate the questions. He did not know how to investigate this matter. And so Festus asked if Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. And I think right here in Festus's report, this is where I think he may be a little bit disingenuous. Because if you remember, Festus wanted to send him back because he was doing the Jews a favor. However, now he's saying, I don't even know what to do with him. Certainly, if this were true, then we can, then we can sympathize that as a new and inexper- an inexperienced governor, he was at a loss. He was uncertain. He was perplexed. He was probably telling Agrippa that this is a, such a complex dilemma. I don't know what to do about this Paul. And if you and I were ever in a situation at a, at a loss, then it would be wise to receive counsel, to talk to someone who's spiritually mature so that they can guide us in the right path. So at the end of the day, Paul is going to Caesar. Paul is going to Caesar, and then Festus here is going to hold him in custody until he, until he gets there. And so that's really the summary. If you've been missing out on what's been happening in our service about throughout the book of Acts, this is really the summary. The summary and recount of Paul's situation to Agrippa II. And so what does Agrippa do? He suddenly became very interested about this guy called Paul. He says here, Festus said to Festus, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, said Festus, you will hear him. And so they're going to set up a hearing the next day. And, and this is not a trial, but it is a hearing. And so we come to what I would call part one of the last scene. Part one of the last scene. I say part one because this scene here in verse 23 is actually connected all the way to the end of Acts chapter 26. But I'll just say this is part one for now. And so this, this scene here, we learn about the unraveling of Paul's circumstances. The unraveling of Paul's circumstances. We see here that Luke tells us, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And as promised, the next day, there was a great pomp. What is a great pomp? This is a pageantry, if you will. This is like a coronation. This is a giant, a big show that's been happening, that's happening in the audience hall. You see, look, just imagine the king, King Agrippa and Bernice, just marching into the audience hall with thousands of military tribunes and all the important prominent men of the city. And so there would have been thousands and thousands of people. It's kind of like a big celebration of the royal wedding. Just kind of imagine that, that's the scene here. And then what this is all trying to tell us is this is a King Agrippa is trying to grab attention here. Look at this king. Look at, the, look at Bernice here. However, here's the irony. Although Agrippa was trying to throw a show for himself in his entrance, the real focus, if you think about it, the real focus is not on him. 
Upon who? The Apostle Paul. And ironically, Paul is the one who's going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. To all these people, thousands of them. What an opportunity for him to be in the spotlight, in the hot seat, if you will. And furthermore, here in this scene, as many thousands of people are are gathered in the audience hall to hear the Apostle Paul, this scene fulfills two texts in the New Testament. First, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. You remember that Jesus said that Paul will stand before the Jews and he will stand before the Gentiles and he will stand before the kings and testify before them. And not only that, the second text, I don't have it on the screen, but you can turn to Luke chapter 21, verse 12. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. See, way before Jesus was arrested, way before he was crucified, way before he was resurrected and ascended, Jesus prophesied this about his apostles. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This really shows us that whatever promises that God has made in the, old, in the in Scripture, he will fulfill them. And that's why we can trust this word. We can depend on it because God has inspired this word for us so that we can read it and know him. And now, verses 24 to 27, Festus is going to summarize the nature of this hearing to King Agrippa and to all the prominent men in the tribune and the representatives. And Festus said, if I can just kind of imitate his voice here, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he, has done, he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing, to, I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so, they were trying to point their attention to the Apostle Paul. And perhaps this is such a great contrast in this environment. Here's the biggest contrast. Everyone may have been just decked out with their royal attire. And then you have here the Apostle Paul. I don't, know how, I don't know what he was wearing during that time. But he may have just been a very uncharming guy, unimpressive, not very attractive. But one pastor said, one note that once said this, and I quote about the Apostle Paul in this scenario. History has judged Paul to be one of the most noble and powerful men who ever lived. And the crowd here to be a collection of pompous fools, end quote. Here we have the Apostle Paul, most powerful man, not because he's powerful in a sense, 
of his own strength, but because the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is empowering him. And he's going to testify about Jesus and tell them about the gospel later on. You see, what, see Luke here, as you look at this text, Luke here keeps coming back again and again to this important theme about Paul. He's innocent. There's no evidence against him. He doesn't deserve death. Why does Luke want to, us to come back to this theme again? Remember who he's writing to. Who is his audience? He wrote this, he wrote this book to this man called Theophilus back in Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 1. And Theophilus, as I mentioned many, many months or years ago, Theophilus was a Roman, may have been a Roman official. And so Luke here is trying to tell Theophilus, this man, the Apostle Paul, these Christians that I'm trying to tell you, they are law-abiding citizens. They are innocent. They are not criminals. They are not disruptors of peace. And you can trust, and trust what they do and believe in their message, Theophilus. See, we see that the Apostle Paul, though he did suffer in it, as an innocent man, nonetheless, he is, the, he is an imitator of Christ who shares in Christ's suffering. See, our Lord Jesus was the blameless and perfect Lamb of God, yet he died for it. He, so, brothers and sisters, something we can return, something we can think about and reflect is your Christian life blameless in the sight of God? Can someone make an accusation against you that is true? See, Scripture teaches over and again that God will present us blameless before Him. But we need to live this earthly life in light of that future reality where we will one day be completely blameless and sin-free. Therefore, we need to continue to walk in repentance from our sins, continue to trust in Christ, continue to live in obedience to Him. So, see, as we conclude, about to conclude this text, while Festus decides to accept Paul's appeal, he is now caught in a conundrum. He doesn't know what to write for the emperor regarding Paul as an official report. He doesn't want to send Paul to Caesar without a good reason. And so since this was a re religious issue, he doesn't know what is at stake here. And so he wants to know what Paul is actually being charged with so that Caesar is aware of the charge. And so right now, he, he doesn't have anything to write because Paul is innocent. But here, he's sort of kind of later on going to be trying to fishing for a credible charge. But he doesn't get any. And so... Eventually, as our text ends, it ends with a cliffhanger. It ends with a screen fading black as Paul is going to be testifying before King Agrippa and all these officials. But you will have to wait several weeks later until we cover Acts chapter 26. So come back in the several weeks later. But as, we can, but as we are slowly wrapping up, let me just summarize what we've learned. And that is, the that is, first, the unforgiveness of the Jews. Second, the unfolding of Paul's strategy. Third, the unexpected consultation. 
and fourth, the unraveling of Paul's circumstances. And I want to return to a line that Festus said as we wrap up this message that I think is appropriate as we transition to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. See, remember what Festus says. He talked about this certain Jesus that he doesn't know. He was, who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. See, there are some important questions that you need to ask. Who was Jesus? And was he raised from the dead? Was Paul telling the truth about this certain Jesus who died and is now alive? Is Paul speaking the truth here? See, brothers and sisters, there are many people in your life that may not know this certain Jesus. They may have heard about him, but don't know him too well. Jesus has given us the Great Commission. He has given you the Great Commission, that is to make disciples, to evangelize, to witness for him. He has given us the responsibility to be his witnesses to those who haven't heard about him. And so you know the message. You have the message of salvation. But what are you going to do about it with what God has given you? And maybe they're here, you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You may have heard this, about this certain Jesus, but you don't know him. See, Jesus was crucified and he died on the, that bloody cross to save sinners and free them from the enslavement of Satan and sin. Jesus, however, is no longer in tomb. He didn't stay dead. That's why we, have, we celebrate Easter, the Resurrection Sunday. He's alive and he's now sitting in the right hand of the Father. But after, and after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to at least 500 witnesses. And during Paul's time, during this time in Acts 25, Festus could have went and interviewed those witnesses. And they would have testified that they saw the risen Jesus. Not just Paul saying it, but there are also these witnesses who can testify as well. Now, why should the risen Jesus matter to you, my friend? See, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then you don't need to care about the Christian faith. However, since, I believe, since Jesus was raised from the dead, then you need to take his word seriously. See, he claimed to be the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. He claimed that he and the Father are equal, that they are one, so therefore Jesus is God. And he's fully God and fully man. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, who came to take away sin. And he claimed that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he claimed to be the giver of eternal and abundant life. But the question you need to ask yourself is this, my friend. What will you do with this certain Jesus whom Paul asserted to be alive. Is he Lord? Is he dead? He is alive. That's why we're here together, worshiping him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you, and I take, we thank you for your word. And if there are those who don't know this certain Jesus, I pray that they will turn to you. They will turn to you in faith, and come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. 
And as we think about who Paul testified and whom Festus wanted to know more about, I pray that as we think about Jesus' death during the Lord, time of the Lord's Supper, may our hearts be more drawn to him. May we continue to live in light of the gospel. Oh Lord, may it also be a time when we can renew our relationship with you, confess any sins that we haven't confessed yet, and turn away from them so that we can live for you in newness of life. So I pray that you will bless our time together as we reflect upon this, these elements. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.